You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. You're really not even 10 years down the path of the majority of healthcare information being electronic. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On this week's show, Ben takes a closer look at video surveillance and privacy issues being argued in front of the First Circuit Court. I look at Facebook's spotty record when it comes to reining in their algorithms. And later in the show, the return of Donna Grindle, CEO at Carden and co-host of the Help Me With HIPAA podcast. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. All right, Ben, uh, we've got some really interesting stories to share this week. Uh, Why don't you start things off for us? I have a fascinating case. It comes to me via friend of the pod in my mind, Oren Kerr, Professor Oren Kerr. We'd love to make <laughs> him an actual friend of the pod, but in your fantasies, he's a he's a regular listener and <laughs> my unrequited love. Uh, yeah, okay, very but good. He alerted me to a case in the First Circuit, which is the Court of Appeals in the Northeast United States, and this is about the installation of a secret video camera outside somebody's home. So it was posted on a utility pole, unbeknownst to the people who live in that house. So there is one former official magistrate, so somebody who had been in the judicial system. Her and her two children were basically running a drug trafficking operation and had taken trips back and forth from Vermont to, they lived in Massachusetts, to exchange money for drugs. And so the police became suspicious. They installed this poll security camera. These individuals were caught and they were prosecuted. And they are challenging their prosecution on Fourth Amendment grounds, basically saying this is an unconstitutional search because they have a reasonable expectation of privacy in their own home. So this raises a bunch of really complicated issues that don't really lend themselves to having an easy answer. First things first, when we talk about any Fourth Amendment case, is this a search? We know it's a search if the person had a reasonable expectation of privacy. So you do have a reasonable expectation of privacy inside your home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly to to some extent, you know, around the curtilage of your house, you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. But when you're outside, you really don't. Uh, and this camera wasn't peering into the windows, you know, 
it wasn't infrared technology looking at whether they're using heating lamps inside the house. It really was just looking at the outside of the house the way any snooping neighbor could. So seemingly that doesn't really count as a search. You know, if I went out on my front lawn and did a bunch of illegal things and my neighbor saw me, I'm not really exhibiting much of a subjective expectation of privacy, let alone one that's reasonable. Mm -hmm, And so that mm -hmm. seems to be what the government is arguing here. Let me pause you for a second here. Did they have to get a warrant to put that camera on the pole? They did not. So that's the issue here. If they they had obtained a warrant, this would be a reasonable search. Or, or, yeah, this would be reasonable because they would be admitting that it was was a search, but you can search uh, and have it be reasonable if a warrant has been obtained. So no warrant was issued in this case. Okay. The defense tried to invoke Carpenter v. United States, which I know we've talked about many times on this podcast. Mm -hmm. And that case stands for the proposition that you have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the whole of your movements. So the reason that cell site location information is protected under the Fourth Amendment and qualifies uh, as a search under the Fourth Amendment is that it reveals somebody's movements over a long period of time. I think what the prosecution is saying here is that's not the issue in this case. We're not following this individual from location to location. We're not tracking their location. This is a fixed camera that is perched outside their home. So Hmm. that doesn't really qualify. It doesn't really relate to the Carpenter case. But it tracks their comings and goings from that place, right? Cars in the driveway leaving and arriving. It does, but, you know, that doesn't relate to the whole of their movements. They don't know where the person is going. They don't know whether they're going to sell drugs or, or, you know, going to daycare at the grocery store. Right. So it just doesn't quite invoke that same uh, suspicion that we have in the Carpenter case where they were collecting somebody's historical cell site information over a period of weeks and months. So the other argument here uh, relates to what we call the mosaic theory, which basically means maybe it's not a search technically every single time that camera catches something. You know, if you were to hang it up for one hour on one day, maybe that does not qualify as a search. But if it's constantly monitoring your house and monitors you for an extended period of time, Perhaps law enforcement could start to put together a mosaic of your life, put those pieces together, and that mosaic in and of itself would qualify as a Fourth Amendment search. The mosaic theory is not exactly favored among many jurists. It is a theory. It's not one that's been widely adopted, although Supreme Court justices have hinted at thinking favorably about it, but it's never Hmm. been kind of formally adopted. But to me, that seems like a bit of a stretch in this case because we don't really know where to draw the line. At what point do we have a mosaic? Is it reviewing this data over three days, over seven days, over a month? If you're going to use that theory, it just becomes really hard to adjudicate because we don't know where those dividing lines are. So basically, we've gone through a lot of constitutional theories of what amounts to a Fourth Amendment search, and we're still kind of left without a satisfying answer, which is why I'm just very curious about what the court is going to do here, whether they're going to kind of formulate a new rule that relates very narrowly to the circumstances in this case. And I think they might. Some analysts have said this is somewhat analogous to blue light cameras uh, in neighborhoods or any sort of CCTV where you're monitoring activity on the street. I think this is 
a little bit different uh, because this is perched directly outside somebody's house and is, is laser focused on this house. So maybe the court will decide because of that, because of the fact that it's aimed at one individual house, maybe that qualifies as a search uh, because somebody should have a reasonable expectation of privacy, uh, at least over the long run, while they are outside of their own home. But I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's, I just think it's a really tough case, and I'm very curious to see uh, how they wrestle with these very difficult issues. One of the things that caught my eye here in in this description of the case, the the back and forth between the judges and and the lawyers was uh, they asked about a fence. You know, if you have a fence around your property, that may change what is a reasonable expectation of privacy. You know, the, in other words, if I build a fence for privacy, I put an eight foot fence around my my home. It's different if so now someone walking by on the street can't see inside my front yard, but, you know, they could get a ladder. Right. I love that the lawyer here did uh, his or her research. I can't remember uh, what the name of the lawyer was. The lawyer was like, well, technically it's against like local code to build fences that are that high. That would reach as high as that camera. So that's not really a possibility in this case. Right. But that's where I'm going here is because I, I think it was one of the judges who said, like, this camera was 20 feet up on a pole. You know, how high a fence would you have to build? It seemed to me like they're asking, are we taking away the individual's ability to activate privacy of their property, of their lawn, you know, <laughs> rather than inside the building itself? You know, is it possible? And and as someone else pointed out in the back and forth here, I suppose it's been found legal that they could park a helicopter above your house and look down on you that way. And that's fair game. Yeah. I mean, there are cases that indicate that if a small plane or a helicopter is flying at a relatively low altitude that's accessible by the public, then that does not qualify as a Fourth Amendment search, which might seem kind of counterintuitive to most people who think that they have privacy protection in their own backyard, say. Part of it is, as you say, how do you exhibit your subjective expectation of privacy in this scenario? They brought up a a bunch of hypotheticals here. What about a no trespassing sign? Well, that doesn't really do anything because uh, I don't know about you, but when I see a no trespassing sign, I can still look on that property. I probably am more likely to look as a neighbor into that property if they have a no trespassing sign. And you can't build a fence, as you say. So what are the options if a person really does want to conceal themselves on their own property? And so without giving these potential defendants the right to exhibit that subjective expectation of privacy, it seems unfair that they've kind of automatically forfeited that expectation. Yeah. I wonder too, in this case, like suppose the camera was looking at the street at the end of the driveway, you know, in other words, just seeing what was coming in and out of that driveway, not looking at, at, at the uh, the property itself, the public space outside the driveway. And would that be a distinction without a difference where I can still see the vehicles that are coming and going, the people that are coming and going, I can read license plates, like, you know, that sort of thing. I suppose I, I'm not going to be able to see what people are taking in and out of their vehicles or in their trunks or things like that. But, you know, how, how does that move the bar uh, if we are an agreed upon, pub, a, a place that we all agree is a public place, the street in front of the house versus the driveway that is someone's private property? Does it matter? It seems to me that that would matter. In fact, one of the judges here, you know, at least mentioned a possible distinction is that when you're talking about any sort of CCTV or cameras posted in more public places, maybe on 
a street light that's not directly, you know, peering into somebody's house. Maybe that's a distinction from what we have here, which is targeted surveillance. It's looking specifically at one house, one family, one doorway. So that might actually be a worthy Fourth Amendment distinction. It's sort of the difference of being the target of the search and being caught up in sort of a dragnet. And for better or worse, when you are caught in a dragnet, you are less likely to be able to assert your Fourth Amendment rights than if you are specifically targeted for a search. And that might be the distinction that the First Circuit draws here. I mean, to give you an idea uh, as to how complicated this case is, the district court ruled one way, and then there was a three-judge panel on this appeals court uh, that ruled the opposite way, and it was controversial enough that the full First Circuit is hearing this case en banc, meaning uh, sitting as one court. And that's relatively unusual. I mean, you get Hmm. several en banc cases per year, but it means that there's really a difficult dispute here, and these questions are, are not easily answered. Is this the kind of thing that could find its way to the Supreme Court? I really think so. I think this is uh, the type of thing that could have a glide path to the Supreme Court. Usually before we get a case like this coming to the Supreme Court, you might have to see some disagreements among circuits. I could anticipate if the first circuit kind of developed its own rule here, that's very limited to the specific circumstance of a pole affixed to a camera uh, targeted at one individual house. You know, maybe the Supreme Court would want to wait and see if there were any other cases across the country that addressed that very narrow question before they decided to rule on it. But I think it's certainly the type of case that we could possibly see in front of the Supreme Court. All right. Well, time will tell. It's uh, it's the kind of case you and I love to hash over, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. I mean, I know we like to focus on modern technology, and this isn't quite as, as modern. But it's it's one of those things where today it's, it's video cameras, and they're going to figure out, you know, some other more sophisticated, modern way to to peer into somebody's house uh, or to violate a a person's expectation of privacy. I think it just kind of behooves us to follow where, you know, where these cases go and where these lines are drawn. Well, and and video cameras have greater capabilities than they used to, thanks to facial recognition and being able to read license plates and all those sorts of things. They've cranked up their own capabilities. So I think that's that's an issue as well. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's a good story. Um, My story this week uh, comes from the MIT Technology Review, a story by Karen Howe, uh, and it's titled How Facebook Got Addicted to Spreading Misinformation. Uh, A bit of a long read here, but I I highly recommend this article. Really worth your time if you're interested in this sort of broad issue that we've been talking about with uh, Facebook and engagement and certainly after the the last election cycle and the riot at the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., all play into this thing here. And really what this story does is it follows uh, a bit of the history of how Facebook has approached its algorithms, uh, how it developed its algorithms, how they started out uh, really on the advertising side of the house, and then moved over to engagement. And the bottom line is that it seems as though Facebook uh, and CEO Mark Zuckerberg in particular, they prioritize growth over everything else. And so if if the, uh, the folks within Facebook who are working on artificial intelligence if they come up with something that you know may do a better job at uh, not spreading misinformation or amplifying divisions in our society, if that slows down growth, chances are it's going to meet resistance from the highest levels of the company. 
and that seems to have happened time and time again throughout the company's history here. What uh, caught your eye with this article, Ben? First of all, I, I, it is a long read, but I highly recommend it. It goes into the history of this individual who I think has a real sense of, if not guilt or regret, just kind of unease about developing this monster. I don't know if you have uh, were forced to read the Frankenstein, you know, the original Mary Shelley Frankenstein in, in high mm. school or college. Yes. Um, <laughs> but, but that's really what I, I think of here. And we have our Dr. Frankenstein who designed this monster that's really out of control because the algorithm has allowed Facebook to be extraordinarily profitable. They dominate the market for social media. They have billions of users. It's one of the most successful companies in the world. So mm-hmm. when you have that financial advantage, why would you voluntarily peel back you know, th- this formula that's given you so much financial success? Uh, and I think it's kind of difficult for any of us to weigh those ethical concerns uh, against you know, what is a very successful business model. But I think all corporations, to some extent, have a kind of a public responsibility, even if it's not explicit, if you have the capability of building something that's dangerous to the public, even if it would be profitable, and even if it is technically legal, I think you have a moral or ethical obligation to try and rein in uh, its excesses. And I think there are no excuses for Facebook anymore, because now we know, based on Cambridge Analytica and what's happened in the past two election cycles, that their formula does encourage the sharing of false information or information that might incite violence. So at this point, they've sort of lost the excuse they might have had eight to 10 years ago where there wasn't any really any evidence that it was the algorithm that was leading to these bad outcomes. Now I think we have enough evidence to show that it does. And so I, I think Facebook, whether they have a legal responsibility or not, uh, and they're being sued now, but largely for anti-competitive practices and not as much for this. But you just get that question of at what point do you have an ethical or moral responsibility? And for those of us who are Facebook's consumers, you know, I'm I'm like the rest of human beings. I want to see what my high school friends are up to. Mm-hmm. Do we have a responsibility to stop feeding into something that's can be incredibly destructive. So it is incumbent upon us to deactivate our accounts uh, until Facebook starts to to make changes to the algorithm. It's good that they've developed somewhat of a conscience. This article talks about cutting against algorithmic discrimination. That's a narrower issue. Uh, It's good that they're addressing that. But I think Facebook will sort of have this moral scourge until they are able to stop the relentless spread of misinformation. Yeah. And I want to dig into that. I mean, people within the organization, within Facebook's organization, their bonuses are based on growth. And, you know, if you want to tell someone what's important to you, you want to tell an employee what's what your priorities are, doesn't matter what you say to them, how you pay them is, is, you know, that's going to tell them the real story, right? Right. And in this case, uh, growth and engagement, again, it seems to be above all else. And this article talks about back in August of 2018, with which was the ramp up to the U.S. midterms. Seems so and, long ago, doesn't it? <laughs> and yet so close. Yes. Um, and and President Trump and uh, many other leaders in the Republican Party were accusing social media giants, and including Facebook, of anti-conservative bias. 
Uh, and they said that Facebook's moderators were uh, applying community standards, which were suppressing conservative voices more than liberal ones. Now, those charges were debunked, but the platforms and, and Facebook were affected by this. They, they did not want to be seen as being biased against one political side, especially in such a divided uh, nation as we are right now. Uh, and with a powerful president like President Trump was, who's not afraid of going out in public and expressing his opinions right? Right. <laughs> with his great influence, yes. with his large audience. So here's the thing that really struck me in light of all that is this story points out uh, about how Facebook approached fairness, this notion of fairness, fairness between political sides. And I'm try- I was trying to think of a good analogy here. So let's say, for example, Ben, that you are a really good driver. Right. I'm there. You're, yep. you're, a, you're an excellent driver. You're you're courteous. Uh, you always use your signals. You you know, you let the other person go first at a four way stop. All of my, those my good wife things. might argue otherwise. But sure. <laughs> and let's say that I am a terrible driver. Right. I run red lights all the time. I've never seen a, a stop sign that I didn't just uh, smile and wave at as I drove right through it. Right. I drive too fast, uh, uh, drive fast and I take chances. Mm-hmm. OK, so. When we approach how to uh, treat the two of us fairly, one approach would be that we come up with a set of rules, right? Uh, Speed limits, stop signs, stop lights, all those sorts of things, reckless driving. And we apply those rules to each of us fairly. And, Mm -hmm. And we would say, so in that case, chances are I would receive a lot more attention than you would because I'm breaking the rules a lot more, right? That is correct, yes. that's one way to approach the phrase fairly. Another way would be that it would be fair if you and I received the same number of summons, the same number of tickets. That would be fair, right? That is how Facebook approached the bias uh, argument. Rather than establishing a set of standards and using that set of standards consistently, they were very deliberate about not applying more pressure to one side or the other, even if one side was much more responsible for disinformation or misinformation. And that, to me, is fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating. To put it mildly, it's an interesting definition of fairness. And when you use that metaphor, (laughs) you can kind of see how it starts to get a little bit ridiculous. I think Facebook and other tech platforms initially tried to do what you said, which is, come up with universally applicable rules that would apply to all users. Right. It just turns out that when you apply those rules, certain political actors are punished more than others. I think Mm -hmm. it was Twitter uh, that realized that when it started to use an algorithm to filter out hateful content, it started to filter out like some mainstream conservative activists, commentators, etc. And as a result, they they had to retract that formula and, and... and not use it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it is kind of a backward definition of fairness. You know, I think most of us would agree that you should set standards. Those standards should be very clear and transparent. You should prepare for a bunch of different scenarios that might emerge from those standards and apply the rules accordingly. Uh, and when you have things like Facebook content leading to potential genocide overseas, 
or, you know, leading to an insurrection at the Capitol, you should be thinking less about how many actors in a cert- on a certain political side are getting silenced. And you should think more about whether your platform, whether its rules are being violated in a way that's causing harm to a significant number of people. Mm-hmm. That would be the, the ethical consideration for me. Now, I understand why it might not be the ethical consideration for Facebook. Their formula, as I said, makes them a lot of money. They also are very sensitive, I think, to conservative criticism that tech companies are, are biased against conservatives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think they're going to make decisions accordingly, because as you said, in a divided country, you don't want 50% of the people pissed off at you 100% right. of the time. Yeah. All right. Well, again, highly recommended read uh, from both of us. Uh, this is over at the MIT Technology Review. It's titled How Facebook Got Addicted to Spreading Misinformation. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. We would love to hear from you. If you have a question for us, you can call in. Our number is 410-618-3720, or you can email us. It's caveat at com. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contain threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Ben, I don't know about you, but I am uh, excited, pleased as punch to have Donna Grindle back on the show. She is, of course, one of our our favorite guests. I am renewing my membership in the Donna Grindle fan club. Uh, Yeah, I think I'm going to order a new card as well. Uh, (laughs) I'm a card-carrying member. (laughs) Right, to see. Pretty soon she's going to have to start selling T-shirts. Yeah. Uh, She is co-host of the Help Me With HIPAA podcast. Here's my conversation with Donna Grindle. So we're waiting to see there's an NPRM or notice of proposed rulemaking for changes to the privacy rule that's sitting out there right now for comment. There was uh, already implementation of interoperability and information blocking rules from the 21st Century Cures Act. And then January 5th, there was an amendment signed into law for the High Tech Act dealing with uh, recognized security practices. All of that's happening right now. Well, let's dig into the High Tech Act. First of all, can you just give us an overview? What what is the High Tech Act? So the High Tech Act was uh, signed as part of what we know as the stimulus bill, the ARRA in 2009. And so it it was the healthcare part of that huge stimulus bill. It included several different things, but the one big thing was funding to 
help push the healthcare industry towards electronic medical records because it was lagging behind on technology. And it became known at that time as the Meaningful Use Program. And if you were a certified EHR, so all of these vendors jumped into the market to become a certified EHR because if a hospital or doctor's office implemented one and then proved they were meaningfully using it, then they got funding to help pay for the cost of installing and securing and all of those things. So we're talking thousands and thousands of dollars that were rolling into healthcare to put these things in. Ah, is that why my kid's pediatrician and my primary care physician started using tablets all of a sudden? Yeah, really. And a lot of that goes back to that. Yeah. You know, it just, the whole industry started moving, whether they were the meaningful use program applied to them or not. Now the industry standard was electronic medical records. Once that kicked in, another part of it was saying, okay, we're going to stiffen up the rules for privacy security. We're going to add enforcement, which was never part of HIPAA, really. I mean, there there was, but voluntary compliance, we kind of call it like, it's like a speed limit. It's a really strong suggestion. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they had changed that. That's where high tech added the enforcement. Everybody yells about 1.5 million today. That's where it came from as part of the high tech act. And that actual enforcement piece is what got the amendment in January, 2021. Well, take us through the amendment. What, what's in there? It's pretty simple. It just says, if you can prove reasonably, everything's reasonable and appropriate under HIPAA and high tech, but if you can prove that you have been following what they define as recognized security practices for the previous 12 months, then OCR must take that under consideration when they're doing an audit on your compliance program. They should consider that a reason to give you an early favorable end to your audit. They should consider it if there is a violation and they're looking at the penalties that would apply, and they should consider it if they're going to do a settlement with you as far as the settlement terms. So basically, it's a carrot instead of a stick uh, that if you'll do these things, we're supposed to take into consideration. Downside is there's no guarantees and there's no definition of what consideration means. But, you know, first, can you show you've been doing this for 12 months before that conversation even comes into play? So the clock starts whenever you you implement the things that meet these requirements. Right. And so they define the recognized security practices. They specifically mention the NIST cybersecurity framework, which, you know, critical infrastructure healthcare is technically falls across two or sometimes three of those, depending on how you count. And that's been there for you know, like 24. 14, 2016, 2018, it got updates. So it's been out there a while, and there's been a lot of discussions. I frankly have always kind of planned for that to be where HIPAA goes, is Mm. in that direction towards the cybersecurity framework. Because when you think about it, the security rule hasn't been updated since 2005, ever. Mm. Zero changes. That's the good news that it's been that flexible. The bad news is that was before we even had iPhones. You know, right. if you just think about how different things are. So that that's where these things help. 
So the NIST cybersecurity framework, and then the other thing they specifically mentioned was the 405D programs, which is the health industry cybersecurity practices that were produced out of the Cybersecurity Act of 2015. And uh, I don't know how familiar you are. Most of that was governmental kind of things, you know, making sure we had trained workforce, making sure we had funding to secure national security, but clearly we've still got issues there, solar winds. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but the other piece was the uh, they had this other section. Uh, and one section, the only industry singled out was healthcare. Hmm. That's quite telling that we needed to improve cybersecurity so much that it was singled out in the National Cybersecurity Act. And that final piece, there were a lot of pieces, but 405D is the piece that developed a guide designed to help healthcare entities implement cybersecurity. And it focused on five threats and said, if we can give you 10, you know, we can't call it best practices because lawyers and, <laughs> uh, and you can't call it recommendations. We have to call it considerations, all of those kind of things. But if you do these 10 practices and sub with their associated sub practices, it would then help you mitigate these five overreaching threats, which are phishing, social engineering, Ransomware, uh, loss or theft of device, insider issues, both accidental and malicious, and then connected medical devices. So it's really great. I kind of see it because it cross-references to the NIST cybersecurity framework that it lets you kind of have a healthcare guide to implementing NIST. And that's the way we kind of look at it. In fact, I joined the 405D committee that they're continuing to update and develop things through these volunteer task force. And so I joined it in 2019. Very excited about the things that, you know, were going to come out in 2020, but we all know. But the 405D lets you pick, it functions a lot more like the CIS 20, where you, are you a small organization, a medium organization, a large organization? And then this is the way you should approach it based on the size and complexity of your organization. So we're big fans of that, you know, being on the committee and all, it does make me spend a lot more time with it, but we're recommending that people use that. If you're not already down the path with the NIST cybersecurity framework, get the hiccup HICP because nerds. Um, (laughs) And there's several guides and and a lot of things are going to be added in there now that it's part of these recommendations, you know, now we're recognized security practice. Everybody's like, we better sit taller in the chair. But uh, hmm. that's a huge thing, you know, but this, they they have to, of, of course, define how they're going to implement it, define how they're going to do these things. But still, HIPAA for all these years has been like the menu of security things you need to address. You need to address all of these things, passwords and network security and inventory and all of that. But it's just the menu. It doesn't tell you how to do it. And we look at the cybersecurity, uh, the 405D and NIST as here are the ingredients and some selected recipes to create the things you need to have on your menu. 
Now, there's some stuff going on when it comes to patients' rights to access their own medical records. Can you bring us up to date on the activities there? A bunch going on. I've never seen them on an enforcement tear like they've been with this. Hmm. So they announced in 2019 they were going to start an enforcement initiative to ensure patients' right to access of their records uh, was being met, and that was defined in high tech with very specific rules. And they were getting so many complaints, and they tried outreach, and they tried all this, so they finally said, we're bringing down the hammer, and they've had 16 cases that they resolved. That That's more than they normally do in a single year across all cases. Hmm. So since... They did the first one in 2019, and then when they were finally able to open things back up and start their enforcement actions, you know, after the big COVID thing, September, they announced five on one day. Never seen them do that. Hmm. Then they had October, November, December, January, February. We've had cases announced, enforcement actions. Never seen them do that. So here's the big deal. And in most of these cases, there, there's really two areas that there are failures. There's a reason that this is a patient right that they really want to push. If we look at the whole rebuilding of the U.S. healthcare system, it involves more patient engagement. And if patients can't get access to their records, it really becomes hard for them to be engaged in the process, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody's like, what, what are you writing down over there? What are, you, what are you writing down? Right. So now they're making it clear that everybody needs to follow the rules. And right now, as the rules are, it's from the time a patient makes a request that shouldn't be super hard to do. It's not like I should have to go out and get notary and all this other stuff to prove I'm me. I shouldn't have to jump through hoops. <laughs> right. But yeah. But at the same time, I should be able to prove I'm me and it's not just, you know, some random person calling up and wanting it. So, you know, a balance, you know, but I still don't need to have character references and stuff. So one, it shouldn't be hard for me to request them. When I do request them, then you should send them to me in the form and format I request if you can create them. There's this habit for years that even though now records were stored electronically, suddenly I'm still getting a big stack of paper <laughs> when mm-hmm. I want my records. And everybody's like, uh, yeah, no. So the industry is trying to figure this out. You know, hey, you can't just keep doing what you've always done when you have new things. New toys mean new things. And being able to request an electronic copy of my records, and generally it's going to be on a PDF, but it's not going to be me getting a stack of paper that I need to scan to get it to somebody else. Help me understand here, and and forgive how naive this question is, but do I have a master medical record? Is there one record, or are my records scattered about? And if so, why don't I have a master medical record? No, you do not. They are scattered about, scattered to the wind. <laughs> and okay. uh, if that's why we always say you can cancel a credit card. You can't cancel your medical record. Hmm. So medical identity theft is a real problem. People don't understand it until it happens to them. But if I were to, you know, get your information and go and file your insurance and say that I'm you at a hospital in another state, 
and all of my records get in there. And then you end up, say, in a car accident in that state at that hospital. They'll say, yeah, we've had them here before. And they're going to use my blood type, my, you know, if you're not awake mm. enough to know it. So it can be quite dangerous. Mm-hmm. Generally, it's financially devastating because people ditch on these bit. There's horror stories, let me just say. Sure. But that's why you can't cancel them because there's not one main one. The reason there's not one main one is that we don't have a main healthcare system. Mm. Once you get to uh, Medicare, now, you know, the Medicare system is no, but it's still spread out. Mm. Yeah. So we don't have a main system, and there's all of these uh, health HIEs, health information exchanges popping up which give my privacy radar goes off and I freak out over them. <laughs> you know, for me, it's frustrating even if I have to fill out a medical history for something because yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll say to myself, well, I, you know, I, gosh, I, you know, I, I had a, that minor surgery 20 years ago, but I don't remember the name of the doctor and I don't, you know, if only there were a, a place I could look all this stuff up, but it just doesn't. It it just seems like in this uh, modern age in which, which we live, we should be farther along than we are. Well, that's because, I mean, honestly, healthcare until like 2013, most people didn't have electronic medical records. So they're still evolving. So you got to keep that in mind is, you know, you're really not even 10 years down the path of the majority of healthcare information being electronic. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. with that in mind, now we also have, remember all those vendors I told you that rushed to make it? <laughs> right. So they have all these uh, requirements to be a certified health IT, but then they essentially created silos because there was no original thought of how are we going to exchange this information. And that's where the 21st Century Cures Act comes in, which the information blocking rule defines what information blocking practices are and how you shouldn't do it. So it creates a little confusion. Hmm. You know, we're going to start information blocking. It becomes effective April 5th. So you want me to start blocking then? Or, you know, it, it's confusing. But what it says is there are all these things that, again, allow patients better access and better control over their records. And that's what's intended in there is interoperability to be able to say, hey, uh, you know, I want a central record or, or I have my primary care and everything's there. So you just shoot it over here, will you? You know, mm-hmm. just I should be able to do that. Right. That's what the intent of the 21st Century Cures Act is. You know, and we know about those things. There's intent. <laughs> we, we, we don't know where we're going just yet, but, I mean, it's promising. Well, that was my next question. I mean, are, are you optimistic as, you know, as you look towards the horizon? Do you feel like people in good faith are, are trying to send us in the right direction here? In a lot of ways, yes. I mean, certainly COVID has created a lot of barriers and confusion. I mean, if you think what the healthcare industry has been through, either Mm -hmm. they have been overwhelmed or shut down and then overwhelmed or, you know, asked to limit your number of patients that you can see. But, oh, by the way, you know, you don't get to control your pricing. Insurance companies do really and truly. You know what I mean? The insurance Mm -hmm. company, that's why I always love that that it's a a capitalist. No, it's not. The insurance companies are deciding, not the providers of care. But 
I see that there are some attempts to limit, you know, just by the recognized security practices. Okay, now I'm not just going to say you have to do this or I'm going to charge you a lot of money. It's these are really the things you should be doing and we'll reward you for doing them. And same thing with it's unfortunate that they're having to do so much of the enforcement on patient records. They're supposed to be able to get it to you for thir- within 30 days of your request, and people are waiting a year in some mm-hmm. cases. And sometimes it's just like one lab report that they really need isn't included. The bad news <laughs> for people that aren't meeting that 30 days is there are proposed changes to the privacy rule that would shorten that to 15 days. And those, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. Those are out for comment right now on the Federal Register. You know, there's a lot of debate in the industry about whether things are just going to sit for a while or all of these things going to get delayed or are they going to go ahead and be implemented. Just we're in a transition in the middle of a pandemic and on top, you know. I want to log on to a website, Donna. I want to log on to a website. I want to see all my medical record for my whole life. Just let me log on to a website. Why is that so hard? Because I don't know where your data is. I promise I can't find it. (laughs) Oh, man. So, yeah, there's a lot really up in the air, and I'm anticipating between now and June, a lot's either going to get pushed out. I mean, if you look at... The notice of proposed rulemaking for privacy changes, the comment period ends March 22nd. The information blocking rule is supposed to become effective. It was November. They put it off to April 5th. And then we've got the newly signed recognized security practices that's sitting out there in the is part of the law. So there's a lot that either needs to be pushed out or it's just going to start happening because of the you know, time frames that are built into the, the law with this. So mm-hmm. it's, gonna be, mm-hmm. it's really interesting to see, uh, you know, because there's just so much to overcome. I mean, the most important thing healthcare is dealing with right now is getting vaccinations. Right. You know, it both within the industry and believe me, there's a lot of people that are mistrustful of the vaccinations, even working in healthcare. Right. And I'll stick my arm out there right away. Go ahead, poke me. I'm yeah, going I'll try it. I'll try anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm a fan of patience with all of this stuff and understanding, and and act, instead of just kind of bringing the hammer down, because these are real fears of people have, real concerns. You know, it's not trying to buck the system with most people. All right, Ben, what do you think? Always good to hear from Donna and just to hear her perspective on the evolution of HIPAA, how far we've come uh, yeah. since the 2009 ARRA when there was this whole question of meaningful use for electronic health records and how that's evolved uh, with the High Tech Act and and new statutes. And I just uh, always love hearing Donna's voice and, and how she can explain things so clearly and, and concisely. Yeah, I have to say, I'm really glad that we have folks like Donna out there who's who are willing to take the time 
to dig into this stuff and then translate it, you know, for for mere mortals like us. Uh, well, you're a lawyer, so you're not a mere mortal, but I, um, but I am. Uh, <laughs> so we yeah, can she, she doesn't, so we don't have to. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Even so lawyers again, don't like reading HIPAA regulations, except perhaps <laughs> Donna Grendel. Uh-huh. Okay, sure. <laughs> All right. Well, again, our thanks to Donna Grendel from Cardin for joining us. We do appreciate her taking the time. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals, confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. That is our show. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>